Welcome to the Petro Nerds Podcast with your hosts, Trisha Curtis, CEO of Petro Nerds. This show combines upstream and midstream expertise in a Rocky Mountain showdown. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Petronas Podcast. This is uh, episode 53, and this is part two of the uh, Petronas um, Crude Life Mashup. I'm joined by I'm my guest, uh, Jason Spees. We, uh, we had a lot of internet difficulties in the last time we recorded this, so you can clearly see that Jason is um, in a, he's actually in an office room where he has internet. I am um, at my dining room table again, my, my natural studio with books and nerdy stuff behind me. And uh, hopefully this internet will hold out, and we can we can actually do this properly. So if you listened to the last one and you didn't seem like some of Jason's comments and questions of mine lined up perfectly, that's because uh, we sometimes couldn't hear each- hear ourselves, and we just made it work. So, anyways, um, we're that discussion was great. We did talk a lot about ESG. We talked a lot about image. Um, ha- I had some nice rants in there. Jason had probably a little less rants in there because his internet was cutting out. Um, but I think it, it turned out well, and so this is an opportunity for us to follow up on all this stuff. And there's a lot going on. It is Friday, July 22nd, 2022. Um, and before I get into what we're going to talk about and WTI prices, uh, Jason, thank you so much for coming back on and welcome. Well, thank you for having me and I appreciate coming back. And I, I am, I'm actually in the uh, um, county store here, the country store. So nice enough from them to allow me the location here, but this is a uh, where, where are you at? Exactly. I'm uh, right outside of Fergus Falls, Minnesota, town called Elizabeth. Very nice. Yes, it's uh, okay. We're, yeah, we're actually for the month of July, and we haven't really talked much about this, but for the entire month of July, the Crude Life has been doing our entire radio program, our entire podcast, our entire livelihood, if you will, off the grid, one hundred percent. So that's, we that's yeah great. we bought we bought an office that uh, has has a basically a, a garage or a shed, if you will, and it's wired up, ready to go, but it just has to be plugged in. So because of the supply chain issues, we're waiting on stuff. So we've actually been doing completely net negative or carbon negative for like three weeks by uh, serendipity because we were expecting one week, you know, we'd blog, we'd have fun, all this stuff like that. I mean, literally, I slept in a tent again last night. I mean, we have no running water. We have no electricity. And we still put out our daily radio show. We're doing a podcast. Sorry, go ahead. Go ahead. Oh, that's fantastic. And this, uh, so I don't want you to get into supply chain stuff too much because I know yes. you want to talk about that and we're definitely going to get into that. Um, so that's a great, we'll, I, we want to get into this supply chain stuff because clearly it's impacting you on a very day-to-day level. Um, but before we jump into that, this is, uh, so this is part two of this Crude Life Petronerds mashup. WTI prices are, are, we really took a dive. We saw 102 this week. We have dived down to 94.61. Brent is 103.14. Nat gas has surged out, really out of control at eight, $8.30. Um, and remember these numbers, folks, because when we talk whoa, about what, inflation... And what was natural gas? Eight thirty, eight bucks, um, eight eight thirty in MCF. Yeah. I have not really checked out that in a while. And, Holy cow. Okay. So if, you, if you're concerned about, if people are wondering why the market um, is not doing well, part of it is definitely net gas prices, and that ties into inflation figures and electricity prices. Dutch TTF, interestingly, so this is Dutch, you know, European natural gas prices on a dollar per mm BTU basis. So same same equivalent as our Henry Hub net gas is 46.59. We've seen sort of some crazy, I'd say traders are definitely involved in this. Part of why net gas prices are up is because there is optimism on this Freeport LNG facility coming back online um, sooner than expected, um, those volumes coming back. And then so we'll, we'll be exporting more volumes. We're averaging you know 12 BCF a day of export. So those are strong. And then the, the Dutch TTF and natural gas prices in Europe are really, um, I mean, traders are kind of, they, they are all over the map. Russian supplies, um, the Nord Stream 1 maintenance uh, went off maintenance yesterday. Um, I believe it's running at, or the, maybe the, the night before, last 24 hours it's been running. It's at 40% of capacity. Um, but then Putin has gone ahead and, and made lots of 
interesting comments and threats about what could happen in the winter. And that's partly why our net gas prices are up. Um, so traders have just gone and cut this out of whack. And then you mortgage prices, the 30-year mortgage, which I like to add in here, is we're still staying under the sub 6% mark. Um, but I have a feeling that's going to go up. That tracks the 10-year yield, and um, which is not, I mean, it's, it's not a perfect correlation, but we're seeing um, a lot of volatility in that space. And I mean, obviously with inflation at 9.1%, we're probably going to see you know interest rates go up. So Lots going on there, but I think today, um, in addition to your so supply chain stuff, we I want to touch on you know inflation. We want to get into the inflation piece. We want to get into the inflation supply chain, especially within with regards to your perspective and what's going on in the field and from the service sector, which we we talked about in depth at the last podcast, but we didn't get into quite this stuff. So I'd love to talk about inflation supply chain. I want to talk about the Biden administration's comments. Um, you know, on on how they're they're happy with they're claiming credit for a reduction, a sixty cent reduction in gasoline prices. I'm sure they're not going to claim credit when when those prices go back up because um, they certainly didn't claim credit for that. And then I think we should talk about the rig count and um, lots of little comments on China. We didn't get to get into the last podcast episode, and I absolutely want to um, because there's stuff going on in North Dakota, which I think is is fascinating. So um, let's go back to your your uh, your sleeping in a tent. These supply chain issues. Oh, I know yes. you want to talk about supply chain. So, um, yeah, uh, have it. And, you know, what, what questions do you have for me? I mean, I have a ton of thoughts on, on what's going on, but but you're you're obviously experiencing this and you have some thoughts about what's going on in the actual field as well. Well, yeah. So we've um, we've had a few hiccups happen with we were July 1st. We were going to do an off the grid office and we were going to try to introduce, you know, maybe maybe a solar panel, maybe a wind turbine, maybe something. But because of the some of the more ethical companies and some of the more economic ways to do things that make sense on a sustainable standpoint, the supply chain just is not there for those particular things. So we've been having to troubleshoot and we'll come out later about that. And I'd like to come back and join you and actually talk to you about some of the issues that we've been having. But um, when it comes to the supply chain, there's several different directions I want to go. Number one is uh, I just had an interview with Bailey Bitkiff. He's out of Casper, Wyoming. His dad is a uh, state legislator. Out of, yep, out of Casper. And um, he's, uh, his dad is a, a politician on the eastern side in a Lusk area, Lusk, Wyoming area. And he travels 6,000 miles a month. So he's one of those guys that does cold calls and checking everything out, this and that. And so we talked about the actual, you know, the, the the sales guy putting a hundred dollars or a hundred and fifty dollars in a day instead of fifty. All of a sudden now either his company or if he's an independent contractor, he's got to pass that on at some point. So that's number one with the supply chain. Number two, here's a gentleman who works in the heating and cooling industry who's kind of on the ground floor of things. If you want your air conditioning to work, if you want your heating to work, well you need the heating and cooling and water people there. Are you ready for this, Tricia? Here's a text I, I got I am, from an sorry, individual. Yep. No, that's okay, because I get a lot of texts from emails and all kinds of stuff from people. Just got a bill for testing reagents. The bill for the products I ordered usually costs around $130. The bill I got for the order today was $319 with each item each item averaging a $5 and $30 supply chain surcharge. This is one of his daily little bills. All of a sudden, now he's starting to see supply chain surcharge on bills out of nowhere. But now, because he works so much with government, and he works so much with military, and he works so much with you know uh, monopolies, if you will, you know, the duopolies and the monopolies, that just came to him. There was no meeting. There was no heads up. He now has to figure out what he's going to do. Is he going to pass this on to somebody within his world? Is he going to now go into his savings? Is he going to tell his wife, hey, honey, can't go to yoga anymore because I now have to pay a surcharge that just showed up on my invoice all of a sudden out of nowhere. By the way, his wife actually is the office manager for the company. So she was the first one to bring the bill to his attention, ironically. So these are just two yeah, stories out of, out of the last week and a half. Mm -hmm. Go ahead. Um, I think, I mean, 
I think there's, I love that you bring in the Wyoming piece because I think a lot of folks are sort of out of touch. Um, I had a, a, some Zoom calls um, with some folks um, in, on the East Coast uh, this week and, you know, it brought in some East Coast perspectives and I felt like the recession sort of and even global picture was a little bit out of touch. And I was in San Diego last week uh, and I, I, that is a completely different, you know, I mean, that's, it's a bubble. I mean, seeing natural gas or sorry, seeing gasoline prices around $7 a gallon um, and people just humming around and buzzing. I mean, it's definitely, there's a little bubble uh, of life that people are percolating. And, and I, I heard uh, just recently, just on the market before we logged on was that Amex, you know, American Express has been talking about their, how they're doing and, and what recession fears look like and everything. And for them, what it's been quite positive because a lot of the consumers, a lot of the customers on that use American Express business cards um, have actually have a lot of money and they've increased their business spending. So they've actually seen that do well. The problem is, is that we have so many other people in the rest of the economy. And I, I say that easily the the bottom half, you know, if you have the top 50 percent and the bottom 50 percent of America, easily the bottom half has been in recession for several months, um, if not longer. And uh, this when you add these costs, that that three hundred dollar surcharge or that three hundred dollar cost that was a hundred bucks, you know, our, all of us are seeing that in our electricity bills, what would have been a hundred is now 160. Um, and I mean, I had enzymes for my dog who has a, a, my German shepherd has a disease and I've put pork pancreas enzymes on his food. And that doubled early this year from literally the price just doubled. And they said it was, they put a little note in the bag saying it was, it was, uh, from inflation and, and search art, you know, supply chain, everything like that. And I think we get a little bit mismatched though in this, in you know, what is recession, right? And and what is inflation? What drives recession and interest rates? People think it, rising interest rates are going to drive recession, but actually inflation in itself is driving a recession. Um, and then you have interest rates and you have to look at sort of what what's, uh, when we talk about Fed funds rate, interest rates being that, um, what inflation is and how this all works out in the economy. And the problem is inflation is a tax. I mean, so when you're talking about your colleagues and friends that are getting these, um, are getting these bills, that's a tax. And that means that these people have less money to spend on other things. Now, we all, everybody looks around it looks around themselves and says, well, how can we be in recession? I mean, this doesn't feel like a recession because people are driving and people are buying stuff. And it's like, yeah, they're doing that. But you're, unless you're, I mean, you're, you have less to do stuff with. I mean, everybody has a little bit of less cash. And so maybe you're saving a little bit less, or maybe you're, you're making extra money. A lot of companies have passed along these costs to their customers. So a lot of companies we haven't seen like, and you know, the Biden administration is hell bent on, on you know, nailing the oil industry against the wall and saying they're, they're record profits. Well, there isn't a single business out there that has not passed along inflationary costs to their customer, except for probably some restaurants where I've heard Olive Garden and some others have really had to hold back on their price increases because they know their customers are the ones are feeling it and they're not going to come back. They're going to stop going to the restaurant and not going to return when things get better if they jack up those prices. And you can actually see that in the inflationary data when at-home inflation for food, food at home, is at 12.2%, which we all know is way higher than that when you go to the grocery store because beef is out of control. But it's actually, you, you have lower inflation, still very, very high, but lower than that at restaurants because they can't, they know they're they're going to lose their consumer. So there's just a lot, there's a lot of moving parts here. And I really think the average, I mean, inflation is something super, super serious that businesses, you know, it's in- interconnected with a lot of things, but businesses and the average person has to, you know, wrestle with, and there just need to be a little pushback. I mean, that's why, you know, previous podcasts, I've talked a lot about where when we're, when people are pushing for wage price increases, you know, that's, you can push for that and you can try to, do, you know, do that, but that, when you have wage price spirals, that leads to more inflation um, and it gets things out of control. So it's, it's all this is really interconnected and it's super, super serious. And so, yeah, if you drive a lot, um, my dad just took a job in Meeker, but lives in Craig and he decided to, you know, park his camper in Meeker and stay there because, you know, that if he was to drive an hour back and forth, it, it doesn't make the math doesn't work on the actual with the cost of gas. Now, it would work if, if gas was significantly cheaper. You may be able to make that work because it's, rent rent would work out. But that's why I keep telling people that we haven't seen levels of inflation across the board like this and high oil prices. And that is not just damaging for the U.S., but we're seeing that across the globe. And it's very, very serious in addition to a food crisis globally for for what we're going to see in the next coming months. You're going to see it happen in all corners. In fact, when you when you mentioned your your father with the camper, I was going to go a different direction until you mentioned that because daycare is going to be a huge issue. Um, I remember back Absolutely. When it I, already is, when, I think. I think it is too, but as the school year starts, that's when you're going to see it really come into play because all of a sudden people now are going to have to go back into the routine and, and and summer jobs are going to end and all of a sudden new routines are going to happen. 
And I remember when I, when I had my first child and my only child, I did the math. And actually, I, I went and I figured out, okay, if I was going to go work at this job, after I paid daycare, after I drove, after I did all the different numbers, basically, I was going to make like $50 a month to have someone else raise my kid. So I became a stay-at-home dad, actually, because of those reasons. I think you're going to have decisions like that coming into the household again. People are now going to decide, okay, can one of us work from home and raise the kid? And can we do this? How are we going to make all this stuff happen? Because at the end of the day, someone needs to be there at three o'clock, not five o'clock. Well, and that's where I think, I think that's where you're seeing, we've seen women really come out of the workforce. I mean, and this is something very, very serious for the oil and gas industry because we have women in the oil and gas industry. Um, but we don't have we we're at rock bottom lows for women in the oil and gas industry. Certainly on a higher on an executive level as well. But they've all come out because a lot of them switched job, you know, left because of when oil prices declined, along with with young men as well. Um, but then it, across the board, women have pulled out of the workforce because they've stayed home to either have kids during COVID and stay at home with those kids during COVID. And the cost of daycare um, is out of, is is has skyrocketed. So they just make that that math work well. The problem is that's also what we're seeing when we have, you know, for every two job openings, we only have one applicant and things get out of whack. And that's where, I mean, it's this unemployment picture and it it gets even more serious. And we talked about, we're talking about inflation and daycare and things like that and and doing the math. Well, most people have not wrestled with the idea that unemployment has to rise. It it, it will rise. Like Mm -hmm. we've seen it. So Google, Microsoft, um, Google, Microsoft, Apple, Goldman Sachs, um, and even Ford is talking about every... Most major companies are talking about slowing uh, their sales being slowed down. They're going to slow hiring, if not um, if not reduce hiring immediately. And they're going to most companies are planning on cutting jobs. So we're seeing you, it always starts this way. You, you start hearing about it at the banks and in in New York, and then it sort of trickles down to the big companies. And then what happens is these companies have to follow each other, right? They they see their peers doing this, and whether or not they see it in front of them, they sort of have to do it because they know the economy is slowing. So they're going to have to be cutting jobs because they were geared up for everything. And that has not trickled into the unemployment rate. And what happens with inflation? And unemployment and the and interest rates or they lag and unemployment lags. So we are seeing, you know, I've talked about this a ton, but we're probably going to have to see unemployment at least go above five percent at least at the very least. We have nine point one percent inflation. So and and interest rates are, are are a fraction of that. We have not curbed inflation with interest rates, and so the Fed has to raise rates, and we are going to see unemployment rise. And that's really going to be the thing that people keep talking about. Oh, this recession is going to be soft, and the pullback's not going to be that bad, and it's going to be easy landing. And one, it's never you know the Fed has never actually navigated a soft landing. They probably can't this time. And it's not just the Fed. I mean, the global economy is sort of imploding around us with a massive energy and food crisis abroad. And um, and it's very, very serious. So these companies cutting jobs, I think, for when we think of couples and we think of families with children and we think of all the spending that's going on and how people talk about, oh, everybody has savings. The one, the savings is not that high anymore. We're seeing credit card spending really, really go up. We're seeing payday loans go up and short-term loans and stuff go up as well. And we have massive amounts of debt um, in terms of everybody buying very expensive homes during COVID in the last several years. And we have, you know, averaging uh, a bill or a trillion dollars we've added to the, to the debt level. So we have, uh, you know, the average mortgage has gone up, the average mortgage size has gone up and people have a lot of household debt. And yes, a lot of those were at lower interest rates, but it doesn't matter when you lose a job and you can't, somebody in the household loses a job and that mortgage payment gets a little tighter. And in 2008, we did not have interest rate. We didn't have inflation levels. We had high inflation, but not to these levels. And it was largely concentrated and we had some food inflation, but it was, you know, oil and gas. And then that came down and we're not seeing that now. So I think this is, it's one of the most nuanced, differentiated, unique geopolitical, economic, um, unemployment, um, energy stories I've ever seen. And I think a lot of business leaders, um, are not fully appreciating how serious this is. And especially even in oil and gas leaders as well. No, I agree. And I think if you take a step back, you can see how it all plays out. Because if you take a look at the last 20, 25 years, they spent 15 of that socially engineering people to get natural gas furnaces. So they spent a ton of money ripping out the old uh, fuel oil furnaces and doing this and doing that. At least up here north of the Mason-Dixon line, they did. All Because I reported on them. I got those natural gas 
uh, PSAs. We had to report on those because there was a ton of money. If you wanted a new natural gas furnace, you got $5,000 in tax credits, et cetera, things like that. And now what are you going to do? Just put in a new furnace? I mean, these are major investments. That's why the government kicked in and gave money to these individuals. Now they're demonizing these people. Not only are they demonizing them in the pocketbook, they're, they're shaming them. Shaming them feel like they're killing the planet because they, they want to have some air condition or they want to have some heat. So that's the first thing that I, I say. The second thing is when you take a look at a lot of those people that did that, they're still in office today. Take our president. Take our president. Okay. Joe Biden was the one that was behind much of our coal infrastructure that allowed them to succeed back in the 80s and the 90s. And he's the exactly the same guy that was part of the architecture behind which put them out of business. I mean, that, that, that's mm -hmm. what's going on. A lot of our leadership has been really living high to the hog and they will go whatever direction you want as long as they keep getting their check and they keep getting their money. While the rest of us out there working, we got to figure out how to deal with our new natural gas furnace because the government made us put, us in, put it in. And now we got to figure out how to do with yeah. our rising food costs because all of a sudden this happened. Do you see Absolutely. what I mean? A lot of this has been by design. And a lot of those guys that did this, they're still in office. They're still in power. Well, and that's part of the story. And, Go and ahead. Biden is, um, you know, it's an, we can pivot here a smidgen because I, by the administration, I mean, I think it was, it was Brian Deese was on and I'm pronouncing his name incorrectly probably, but he was on Bloomberg this morning talking about, or late this morning talking hey, wait, about. Wait, what's his name um, again? You know, what's his name again? D is it Brian Doesn't Deese? matter what Deese? his name is. Okay. <laughs> Sorry. Anyways. Uh, so <laughs> anyways, uh, so he's on Bloomberg this morning and he, he's bragging about uh, gasoline prices dropping 60 cents. Now, I, you had mentioned in our previous podcast about how July is sort of this throwaway month. And so I think it's interesting to see that, you know, week over week from 4th of July to the following week, we saw gasoline demand dr really drop. And, you know, weekly changes are can be a lot of different things. But when you see that prices of gasoline were north of $5 a gallon, um, and obviously in some places like California, you're, you're pushing $7 a gallon, really, really serious. So we saw that drop. And I think, you know, seeing $94 WTI levels is partly reflective of, one, the rig count, which we'll get into the... You you know, we're, we're rationing, we're very, very high on the rig count um, of 758 total rigs for, for Baker Hughes. And then we've got um, gasoline demand. People are getting a little bit nervous about the sort of softness there. Um, but I think it's, it. the Biden administration has, you know, claimed their their credit for, for gasoline prices coming down, which they have nothing to do with except for maybe, you know, releasing some of the SPR, which is going to be damaging in the future. Um, but they're also talking about this over this week, we've had uh, the the big speech that Biden gave on climate change. And he called it an existential threat. He, everybody wanted him to go further um, on this, on this piece of, of doing climate change action to where he would basically call it an international disaster. And he would invoke sort of war powers to, to regulate on this. And this has been something that I have talked about. I mean, for, uh, since he came into office is something that I think the administration has wanted to do, but, but given their, the, the poll ratings, given the approval ratings, and given where Congress is at, and given where Joe Manchin is not supporting anything, especially the climate bill, um, it's it's going to be very unpalatable. Well, what Biden did, which is really interesting to your comments just now, is so he put 2.1 billion in spending for climate change, um, but 300 over 300 million of that was actually for air conditioners in poor communities, and. That is not and air conditioner poor communities and, and cooling centers and everything for people to cool off. Well, air conditioner poor community, it is case in point of something the industry, we, a lot of folks in the industry and a lot of just, you know, academics and intellectuals have been saying for a long time is that people need access to, to I mean, heating and cooling and people need access to energy. So if you're giving people, if you're putting an air conditioner in someone's home, you have to pay the, the bill behind that. And the problem is, is electricity prices, if you look at inflation, electricity prices are up 13.7% um, this year or on year over year basis. So massive inflation on electricity. And that's because of our, our, that's because of not solely renewables, but renewables are component to that. And it's because natural gas prices have gone up. And that's why it's so, such a big deal when you see net gas prices go up that I wouldn't say it's a bigger deal than oil prices, but oil prices are largely what you're driving, right? Natural gas prices are how you're heating and cooling your home. And if you don't have enough money, you know, if you're losing a job and you have high oil prices and you, you know, you can't drive as much and you have um, high electricity bills and you have high food prices, something's got to give and people stop 
you know, they stop heating their homes adequately or cooling their homes adequately. And that leads to illnesses. We're seeing that in Europe right now. We saw it be, even before the energy crisis that people were not adequately heating their homes in Europe. I mean, European Central Bank even said that. And you're going to see it here in the winter. You're certainly going to see it in Europe in the winter, but very, very serious. And I mean, I just think it's interesting that the Biden administration said, you know, claims that they claim the reduction on, on gasoline prices is a win for them. They're also, you know, claiming about job growth and everything. And I and you're saying approval ratings for Biden is just atrocious because the economy is looking bad. And I think that this this bubble sort of people aren't realizing if you're feeling good about the economy and you're good about your wages, you just have to realize that most people aren't, that there are a lot, a lot of folks out there that are this inflation is I mean, it's a tax. I mean, that's what this is. So when all these prices go up, that's a tax and you have less income. And I, I think it's exceptionally serious. Um, and and this administration is very much out of touch um, with the average, not just the average person, but um, how to also really think about the economy and how to get it going. Um, this is not the answer. Anything, anything inflationary and additional spending really is not going to help the inflation problem. No, it's not. And that's the other thing is that so much of small business runs America. They said 80 percent of small business runs America. So when you start to look at what small business is, small business hasn't passed on their their cost yet that's the part that's what i'm talking about with the supply chain is Absolutely. that you've got, no you've got a hot shot trucker you know trucker type of thing you've got you know you and i whatever you want to call it they, they, they have yet to pass this on yet we've absorbed the food price increases the gasoline price increases the energy price increases the uh, telecommunications, because that is now part of our daily necessities, increases. So when you take a look at the one, two, three, four, five punch that's coming to the average person, they haven't even st striked back yet. So it, it almost makes me wonder, you know, what is going to come? Because when someone's got nothing to lose, they change into a whole different person. They all of a sudden become what they are. And so are they going to become this, you know, fight back against the rage against the machine like we saw in the 90s? Or are we going to see some more people just going and working the 10 to $15 an hour job and being happy with that? Somebody who is making $80,000 an hour or $80,000 a year, are they going to be happy with the $24,000 a year job? Is, is that what's happening now? Go ahead. I, I just, I see you I nodding mean, along. I, so, I mean, you, you see what uh, I'm yeah, saying? No, I... I those no no those are great really great comments and i think that um this nuanced piece of, and I, I talk with my family a lot about this because, I mean, we see it in sort of Craig and Steamboat um, where, and you, you see this in a lot of towns. So the, the realities of all this stuff are not quite matching up. And so the average person is having trouble wrestling with, you know, th these inflation prices, worried about recession, but they don't feel it yet because, you know, they still have a lot of, they still see signs, right, at all these stores and stuff saying they're hiring. They're not going to be hiring for that long. The trickle down effect, it does happen. So when Ford stops hiring and they're cutting jobs and Goldman Sachs stops hiring and they're cutting jobs, this trickles down quick, you know, and it depends on people are sort of thinking we're not going to have a black swan event and it's not going to be a big thing. There's so many, so many factors out there from a, a crisis standpoint. One of them, only one of them has to happen. And many of them are probably going to happen. I mean, an energy crisis in Europe is going to tank the global economy. Um, and we already have the energy crisis, but winter in Europe, if they do not have enough natural gas. And so we, we saw Europe is saying, European Union is, is trying to say they're going to have a 15% cut. So basically every country in Europe is going to say, hey, we're going to try to have a 15% cut of natural gas usage. Well, that's a pretty big deal because they're saying it's largely going to be the industrial sector. They're not going to ask homeowner, you know, homes to do that, um, but they're going to try to ask homes to do that. Well, 15% reduction is, is a very significant cut, which means industry, which means businesses don't have enough power to power stuff. They can't make right. stuff. They can't do stuff. That's going to be really, really restrictive on their economy, really restrictive to people of getting stuff. Talk about supply chain issues. If you're getting stuff out of Europe, um, I mean, this is, it's extremely consequential. It's very serious. And so we have not felt the full brunt of the, in the U.S., we haven't felt the full brunt of, of sort of the European pull down. But I think in, in the U.S., when we think about these jobs and back to the Steamboat Craig commentary is that we had a lot of people, I think, you know, bought homes in Steamboat during COVID, like everywhere else in the world. Um, and then you had a lot of people getting pushed out of Steamboat and so they bought homes in Craig and Craig doesn't have a lot of jobs. Um, Craig, Colorado does not have a ton of jobs. And I mean, it, it, it just the, the, they're shutting down the, the power plants and they're reducing on the on the coal mines, um, heavily being impacted by Excel and really stringent regulatory policies in Colorado, which I 
you know, strongly, strongly disagree with and think is absolute ridiculousness. Um, but that's happening. And so you don't have a lot of job growth um, going on in Craig. So, but it's out of whack because people can't get a home. They can't buy and sell their homes and they can't do stuff because all these people from Steamboat were living in Craig. And that's the stickiness with that is like, I think that's the acceptance of your, your 80,000 to 24,000. So many people have not been working, right? We do have a lot of people out of the workforce. When you, when you have two job openings for every one applicant, there's a lot of people not working. You do have a lot of um, folks like my dad and others that are sort of in the semi-retirement that want to actually go back to work and they have to take a significant pay cut to what they're actually valued at. Um, and then you have lots of young people who just are not you know, they, they have not paid back student loans. That's we talk about that student loan um, more. To, you know, people have not had to pay back student loans for for years now. It's several hundred billion dollars that has not been paid back to student loans. Now, that's uh, you can argue about the interest rates, which is a bigger deal. You know, the government charging nine percent interest rates is super serious. They should maybe whack off the interest rates and just pay the principal. That would be fine. Uh, but the problem is when you don't have this payback of student loans, the reality is, is that that student, that former student has um, a thousand bucks maybe extra in their pocket every month that they've been spending on other things. And that is inflationary. So you have to realize, I mean, when that's a fiscal lag. And so is when folks weren't paying rent and they were saving all that money, they were spending on other stuff. So, you know, serious, when you have entitlement programs and you have government um, stimulus in, to that degree, it creates inflation. We led the world in inflation along with Brazil and Turkey. It is a category you don't want to be in. And we are a developed de democratic country. And we, we you know, increased entitlement programs massively, partly because of COVID, but also because that's what, you know, um, the Biden administration did. And Congress and the Biden administration spent money like drunken sailors. And this is a consequence of that. So I get really, really, you know, uh, upset when I hear that it's it's the just blaming the Ukraine, you know, the war in Ukraine and it's 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 Putin. And that's ridiculous. We had inflation before that. I followed it month over month, beginning with the administration. And it we had ratcheted up inflation month over month. The Fed was absolutely behind the curve. The Fed did not raise rates because Jerome Powell was worried about his job security. And so this is a reality check of that. There is uh, the people who are at fault for this are at least partly. And some of this is out of, you know, the administration's control for sure. But but absolutely, part of this is is the administration's fault. And then when we comes back to energy, holy crap! Um, if you know, people say, well, it takes too long. You know, if the administration wants to change policies, it would take forever. Well, guess what? This guy has been in office since January of 2020, which, or, or sorry, January of 2021, which means it's now July of 2022. We have been we're 18 months in office, which means 100%. You could have built Keystone XL. You would have uh, over a million a million barrels a day flowing to the Gulf Coast, which would absolutely be impacting ga um, gasoline prices it would, it would have a huge impact on on the um on the state of the market not just in the US but globally because the Gulf Coast is a major refining hub which sets oil and gas prices globally and you 100% could have you know, flagged and built a pipeline out of the Marcellus already. Um, and you could have accelerated permits and, and increased exports. And if you didn't do it, then you can sure as hell do it now. And you can signal to the market that we're open for business. And yes, the, the, the U S uh, drilling companies, the U S E and P companies will have to realize that, you know, prices are coming down regardless because of recession and lower demand, but they would, they would come down a little bit because of all this stuff. But I think the most people in the industry want they want to see lower prices because of these inflationary impacts and the inability to get people in the field, the inability to get truck drivers to move frack sand. I mean, all this stuff is having very serious consequences for for our, for everyone, but specifically the oil and gas industry as well. So, sorry for that rant. Please, no, no, you you brought up something that I think actually the, the should take over now to the direction of the podcast because this is really kind of what is going to be useful for people. Not that the first part hasn't been, but. Um, you brought up something that's really interesting, which is 18 months in, and we are, we're 18 months in. And when you take a look at 18 months, that is a really adequate amount of time to see what kind of momentum a presidential cabinet is creating. And after 18 months, I think we have a pretty good idea now what type of president we have. So the one thing, I think the speculation is gone. He has done nothing to help the oil and gas industry that I've seen in 18 months. The only thing I've seen him do is allow the oil and gas industry to bail him out once or twice. Outside of that, he's done everything. I mean, he's allowed prices to go higher. So, But he's, he's, he's like 
conceded on a couple things to allow something or not. It was all political moves, but outside of that, everything he's done has been to actually put him out of bit. Either, you know, not, not so much put the oil and gas industry out of business, but reduce it down to be a very minor player on the global scene, which is unusual when you're going, you know, 96% of our daily items need oil and gas. To have it go down to 80 in my lifetime would be remarkable, absolutely remarkable. And he likes, seems to want to make it go down to 40. That's dangerous. That's just flat out dangerous. So I, I get that we, we need to recycle more. And the planet was doing that. I get we need to conserve more. And the planet was doing that. I don't think a lot of the leaders were. That's where I think there's a disconnect here. I think a lot of the leadership, the ones who have been there for 20 to 30 years, they're the ones that have not been leading the very sustainable lifestyle. The ones that are there in their inner circle are not leading a very sustainable lifestyle because they continually need to be bailed out over and over and over again throughout the last 20 to 30 years. That's what I'm seeing over and over again. I went through this in the media back in 2009 when I saw Verizon, Amazon, uh, Facebook, and Twitter get tons, and Google get tons of money from the uh, federal government while every newspaper in America and every little small media company went out of business. We either filed bankruptcy or we had to refile or do something. But during that 2009 to 2012 change in our communications, there were certain winners picked by the government to go through. And Yahoo, Verizon, uh, Facebook, Twitter, and Google, they all got, uh, Amazon, they all got major subsidies throughout. Now look at what they do. They pick up the reaction of everybody. During that whole newspaper bankruptcy, the real problem what happened was is a lot of the uh, Associated Press writers got fired and laid off. So original news and original news content got taken out. Now everything is a reaction to some very controlled news. That's, that's one of the things I think has happened too, is that our voices have changed here as well because of what's happening. And that's happening in, yeah. in oil and gas. Um, I believe that's what's happening in oil and gas. Sorry, I got a little existential there for a second. No, but. no, I think, I think that there's a little bit of existential and I want to bring this back to, to rig, the rigs, which I can, I, I've thought of this in a clever, in a clever way to do this sort of industry and the rig count and, and we can, and I do want to bring this back to China, but, um, that, uh, your comment allows me to get into the China thing. I, I think the this media thing is very serious. I mean, I think if we look at just the coverage of the Biden administration, especially in energy, and I, you know, I speak with a lot of folks on this, and I try to do a, in my podcast is even if people disagree with me, I want to provide this information to energy, and I have to say that you know I I don't. I mean, I get my sources from from data, you know, from um, at the actual data, the actual production, the actual analysis, everything. And so um, I'm not going to Fox or MSNBC or CNN. It's coming from, you know, EIA and IEA, BP's, you know, statistical review and, and, and actual company earnings calls. And I think that's important for people to understand that because the when you're when you're thinking about this from an economist standpoint and you're analyzing this, I have to say this administration, we have never seen an administration as hell bent on getting rid of U.S. oil and gas as this administration or not being favorable to U.S. domestic oil and gas. Now, the one benefit they've done is they've allowed oil and gas prices to go up and that has benefited, you know, the industry. Um, but the long run goal is, you know, not allowing for increased amounts of production or infrastructure development um, is not beneficial and in the long run, especially, and it's hard to actually do business and, and going to Saudi Arabia and asking, you know, and asking for increases in output and having a lot of back and forth. I mean, we we didn't even touch on that of, you know, last weekend, the Biden administration was was in Saudi Arabia um, and was, you know, meeting with Mohammed bin Salman, which was very controversial given his criticism of him with the murder of Jamal Khashoggi and and basically asking for them to increase output. And the problem I really have with that is that, um, this is not a humane country. Um, this is not a country that, I mean, they just did a bunch of beheadings, a bunch of a mass execution of 80 plus people in, in March, right after the invasion of, of Ukraine. This is on a regular basis. And then, you know, lifting sanctions on Iran. Iran still does stonings. Um, and Venezuela is all tied with, with Russia. You know, we were trying to lift sanctions on them as well. Everything to increase output. But none of it was, hey, Canada would like to build Keystone Excel. We're going to move these flows. We're going to do this as cleanly, as humanely as possible. And by the way, that most of that pipeline's already built. So it was it's flabbergasting to me on the hypocrisy on energy is just it's so, so big with this administration. Um, but the problem with all that is that 
is that the Biden administration has not really appreciated that or even said, um, and, and the media does this as well. Then no one in the media, including BBC, they always say Saudi Arabia is the largest oil and gas producer. They are not, nor is Russia. Actually, we produce 120 billion cubic feet per day, nearly, of gross withdrawals of natural gas. We are, by and large, we produce, you know, leaps and bounds above what Russia actually produces for natural gas. Um, we produce more than that. We just don't export more than that because we actually use it. And our consumption of natural gas has gone up and it's in the power sector and it has reduced our emissions dramatically because we swapped coal for, for, for natural gas. I mean, it is the single biggest, I mean, we're one of the biggest reducers because um, we, we're second biggest per producer of, of CO2 emissions, but we've reduced that massively and it's been on a downward decline because of natural gas production in the U.S. because of the shale revolution and the shale boom. And we're the largest producer of oil. I mean, 11.7 million barrels per day for oil production. We were at 13 million barrels per day in 2019 that came down during COVID and we were ratcheting our way back. Saudi Arabia is producing 10 million barrels a day and change. They're about 10 and a half million barrels a day to production. Russia is under 10 and a half million barrels a day of production. So this is really serious of that. You you can't you don't even have major media sources, including the Biden administration, saying how much we produce in oil and gas. We are the largest oil and gas producer in the entire world. And that is a really, really serious thing because even just you know owning that is it's so important for geopolitics geopolitics. It's so important for, for leverage and advantage. And it's something that um, I think, you know, from a geopolitical standpoint and from a power standpoint, it's it's extremely serious. So going abroad and asking for more oil production because you're afraid to do it at home, you know, you have to do, people just have to get away from their biases on energy and realizing that this is so much bigger than just the green agenda and climate change. This is, there's a lot more factors at play, including people's livelihoods, including being able to turn on your heat and, over the winter um, and, and whether or not people can afford their bills. And and those things are, are coming home to roost now. They're going to be coming home to roost um, going forward. And media has a lot to play in that. And the, my bringing this back to China is that, you know, China has done a really good job of in, influencing a lot of folks' media. I mean, and this is a very factual, you know, I... It's, it's hard to get good data sources on this, but China has a massive propaganda machine um, and they do send a lot of articles to a lot of various media agencies. Italy is a big country that gets a ton of them. Europe gets a lot of them. And what they do is that these media agencies that cannot afford um, they, they can't actually afford to write all these articles or they don't have hired people. You know, China's offering them for free. So Xinhua News and Chinese media agencies are offering free um, articles to these entities. And so they pull it in and they give about nine out of the 10 articles are factual or within line of reason. And then that sort of that 10th article would be just a little off off the cuff. And, and basically that's how it has, it's sort of permeated and infiltrated. I mean, you know, even this administration has, has been talking about TikTok and the serious, uh, the serious concerns with TikTok and data, um, and what's going on. And I listen to a ton of, uh, podcasts on China and everything. And TikTok keeps getting brought up and mentioned of, of, of when we talk about data and what's going on in the media space. So it's very serious and it's, it's not something that's, that's going away. Um, and it's something that's been, I mean, media is a really big deal. And I think actually the role of China in it is huge. And this is where I'm going to ask you, and I know you can, you can jump in and comment on anything you want with that, but I do want to ask you about China and North Dakota. Um, yeah. Because I know you're, I think you're familiar with this, but I don't know if a lot of folks and listeners are. I was pretty bothered by this, but um, yeah, China is looking to buy um, a good chunk of land or it, they want to do a, uh, I believe it's a grain mill um, and land as well in North Dakota. And um, there's an American who is apparently the CEO and says there's no wrongdoing here. It's no big deal. But the Chinese government is actually doing this is a Chinese company. So very curious as to your take on this um, and what's what are folks in North Dakota saying? Well, a lot of people in North Dakota are not happy. They're certainly not happy about it. And a lot of it has to do with because, you know, a, a, a communist country is trying to come in and basically become a capitalist under the guise it's just it, so there's a lot of onions uh, layers to this onion i guess um there are some people that are pretty upset because uh it's that easy to where if you have a um communist country or a country that has a dictatorship or has some sort of uh, unethical, you know, whatever democracy you want to call it, uh, they can just be an investor then. Okay. Well, on one hand, it kind of bothers me, and we can get into some of the, the inner politics with the governor and some of the politicians, which does bother me, actually. It really bothers me. Um, there's there's uh, another farm as well that they're trying to start 
that has uh, to do with not China, but a different foreign country. And no one's talking about that one either. And so we, we've what got that nine. Um, I don't, I'm not ready to talk about that one quite yet because um, I don't have all of my ducks in a row on it. But I've got some off the record uh, notification that Saudi Arabia is behind one of our farms now in North Dakota. And so I guess I and, just gave it away. The, I'm sorry. <laughs> I didn't mean no, to do that. Uh, the, so the question uh, the, 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 on this, on, uh, so any detail you can provide. In this. So basically, from my understanding, it's either it's an actual farm or it's a grain mill. And it's near North Dakota's military, uh, we have, near some we, of North Dakota's have, military facilities. And, right, right. So there's that whole kerfuffle part of it, too. I mean, but but is that really an issue? I mean, you go down to go down to Lake Charles and into, into Texas and there's all kinds of uh, European and I believe Saudi Arabia, Saudi Arabia bought a refinery down Saudi in Ar Texas yeah, last year. Yeah, you have the Motiva facility, but yep. it's, it's different than, um, so there, I, I encourage people to watch. There's a couple, BBC has a special that you can watch on, you can download on Amazon Prime as well as on, um, there's a couple of China specials and mm -hmm. there's one on Amazon Prime that's free. And I encourage folks to watch that because if you, if you watch it, there's, um, when Xi Jinping first came to office, he actually came to Ohio and it was a big deal because this was farming. And um, there was a gentleman that was uh, in trouble for espionage. I mean, he, he fled, he was living in Ohio and basically he stole a lot of seeds uh, of, of work that farmers had done of, of engineering these plants to produce more. And this was stolen by the Chinese. This is notorious. I mean, the Chinese stole all of uh, the most premier technology in solar, in the solar industry. They stole that from Germany, they put the company under, and then they manufactured these solar panels in China and brought prices way down with forced labor and using coal and, and everything and subsidizing the industry. Um, so they put them out of business. But this this farm site is really big. So when I hear of, and this was a long time ago, this was you know around 2012, I believe, but you can watch these shows. They're, they're great. Um, and so when I think of even just a farm side, one, there is an angle for China. So people say, oh, it's no big deal. Um, but one, are you that hard up for investment um, in the U.S.? So I think it's if, if you can't, you know, if North Dakota needs it and I know they want the jobs and everything, it's that, you know, where's Bill Gates in all this? You know, he seems to be invested heavily with China and he's doing everything. But where and I know Bill Gates is doing various things, but finding other investors to come in and, and do this stuff or, or, or multimillionaires that if this is profitable, if this is going to really make money, other people would be interested in doing this. So when China's wanting so, to buy something that no one else wants to buy in North Dakota, you have to ask yourself why. And okay, let's farming we're gonna is a stop deal. here for a second um, because Bill Gates has also bought 2,100 acres of land. So Bill Gates has bought land in North Dakota to do farming. Also, China has bought land who's been rumored to be an investor with the Bill Gates on the side. So a separate deal. That is, so, that's, I was going to say, there is yes. a, there's a rumor there. Yeah. So and there's, there's been a lot of rumorings about what's going on with Bill Gates in China. Right. So to me, honestly, I, I, I think it is more of uh, the bigger picture of what's happening in North Dakota, which is that if you're a, if you're a billionaire, they'll give you money. If you're not a billionaire, they won't give you any money. So when you take a look at the cryptocurrency market, for example, which you, I know, are very a part of, you, you're very uh, astute on that type of thing. We've had all kinds of companies checking monitors every day, sleeping out at well sites, just really put going all in on this cryptocurrency out in North Dakota. They've been begging for meetings with the governor. The guy from Shark Tank, he decides last year he wants to get into cryptocurrency right to the front of the line. He was given state money already. He's, him and the governor are already in business together to do cryptocurrency. Everybody else that has been doing it for the last 10 years, sorry, sucker. Sorry, ain't, ain't going to get any state money. So North Dakota is handing out tons of money. If you're a billionaire, you, you can get money from North Dakota. Now, they also have the biggest workforce issue on the planet because what they're trying to do is they're trying to create their own little country where they do the trickle down they got a little group that likes to mm -hmm. have a lot of money and then the whole bunch of people that are now saying nope we're not going to work for this anymore we're leaving the the rig count is what 38 i mean baker hughes shows the rig count sure. at 38 i mean I, I mean part of this has got to be north dakota but is even, also that fighting I, for... even, even that i argue because of the whole uh the whole uh, the, the, you know what i mean a lot of it is being subsidized on the back end so is that rig count real like because they're not they're they're capping them they're not producing them so how many of those are happening oh, yeah. you see well, what i mean no, so yeah. yeah that's a, the other thing 
North Dakota did get they did give what COVID money right to um, <laughs> to service companies to increase jobs. No, to no, not service companies to, to the oil companies to the oil companies, not the to service the oil companies, companies to cap wells. Yes. And we we sh- we talked about this in the previous podcast mm-hmm. of this plugging, you know, these policies of plugging wells, which I think are just I think is ridiculous. And unless these the, are, I mean, the I, representation I of it make, is too. I, we can, yeah, and making we could I'm. I'm sure that we could pull all the wells that have been plugged in North Dakota in the last, the recent, with this recent, you know, spur to have jobs and stuff. Um, and with mo- the state giving idea. money that we could make an economic case to, to take those wells and bring them back online. I mean, they're just, unless they're completely stranded, which if they're older, they weren't completely stranded. So they were probably connected to pipe. Um, but if they were completely stranded and you, you had to truck them and everything, maybe, but do you, I don't know. No, no. Do you got a minute for this? Cause I, I can give you the history. So what, what, what happened was, is during the $100 oil, the first $100 oil, there was a bonanza. And you can go back and look at all the public record and look at all the newspaper articles and everything else. North Dakota has a law. I'm familiar. That you, yep. that you have to prove there is oil there. Okay. And once you prove there's oil there, you've got 20 to 25 years to, to harvest that oil. So what happened was, is in 2010, 2012, everybody was out there just... Plus, just just making sure, sending the core sample in, and then all of a sudden now they put it on a hiatus, if you will. So up near Fort Tuna and up near all these places that you need a hundred dollar oil back in the early two thousand tens, which you now okay. need a hundred and fifty dollar oil to. Those are the ones. A lot of them are being plugged. So a lot of them, no, they they. That's what I mean. I believe there's some misrepresentation happening here with the media on how this is happening. So anyways, go ahead. Sorry. Go ahead. Yeah, no, no, that's great. That's great clarification. We probably need to dive into that and pull, pull Justin Kringstad and some others from North Dakota to get into this. Cause I, I find it fascinating, but I, I think this is probably a good opportunity. I mean, there's a, we're at 758 rigs of Baker Hugh recount. The reason I say that is because that's being cited as one of the reasons we're having $94 oil prices in addition to worries about recession and softish demand on, on gasoline, even though we're it's, it's still July. Um, and, you know, North Dakota has has suffered a fate of not being able to bring, you know, a lot of those companies and rigs back because they have a lot of public companies. And therefore, those public companies have just won. They hold their acreage. They don't need to drill everything like that. It, it, even even though at $100 oil, a lot of drilling, I mean, drilling all over the country makes sense at, a, at $100 oil for most, most places. Um, and a lot of fringe places, which I believe we talked about a little bit in the podcast before. But in the previous podcast, you would, you were mentioning rigs directly with inflation. And you were talking about, you know, the the questioning of, you know, dropping oil prices below $100 a barrel. And, and I thought about that a lot because I, I was reflecting on that and thinking after the podcast. And I was thinking about, you know, I am hearing, I hear a lot of folks in the industry who are actually drilling completing wells. And this is why I think there's a a, a, a bit of it, it gets confusing for folks, I think, because you hear industry leaders or CEOs um, say, oh, well, I don't think we're going to increase output, even though they're the ones increasing output right now. They're drilling, completing wells, but they feel tightness, right? They're seeing supply chain tightness, right? They're, a, a trucker will will quit um, on a day and they, they won't get to frack that well for a day because they, they won't get the sand or they won't get the water or whatever it may be. And so they're feeling these pains. They're feeling supply chain tightness. And I'm trying to explain to a lot of these guys that, look, when unemployment goes up, you will have access to people. So unless oil prices crash, which I don't think they're going to completely crash, but let's say we go to 80 or $75 oil, you're still going to need to hire people. And then what you're going to be, we're going to be the industry that's hiring. And I do think that's a message that really has to get across is unemployment across the U.S. has to has to go up and you will have people available for jobs. People will be looking for jobs. And this industry needs to really get behind that messaging and get ready for it too, because there's so much turnover and stuff going on right now. But you have a lot of industry leaders that are using their lens right now of what's happening in the world of, of their business and, and sort of projecting it outward, I think, of thinking, well, things are really tight. And this is, I've seen this in my entire career is that, you know, access to funding, you know, had a lot of industry leaders several years ago saying, we won't have any access to funding. Well, private capital has come back. You have access to funding. Private equity has come back to the space. People are clearly drilling, completing wells. And so, yes, there's tightness for sure. But when you look at that rig count, um, that rig, even when it's, and it's, it's flat on oil for the week, but we added two rigs for gas. I mean, 760 rigs is a lot of rigs. And we were, we haven't seen these levels. March of 2020, we had a rig count of 772 rigs. So we are back to the levels we were at before, and we are definitely doing more with it. So that's, I mean, unless you're banking on these wells being crap and not producing, which they're not, they're, they're doing just fine. And people really do want those returns and the, they're throwing a lot into it. It's just, it's this balancing act of this tightness in the market of, of, 
people, of Frexan, of, of crews, of trucks, of everything, which the entire world is experiencing. I mean, there's a deficit of 12,000 people at Heathrow Airport in London. I mean, the entire world is feeling this, but I don't think they're going to be feeling it for that long. And I think the industry needs to really, I mean, they're going to feel it for a while and there's still going to be tightness and pain. But as we go into recession and things slow down, it, it's going to change. And this industry is going to have to be very aware of that, of how things are shifting and changing and businesses are going to have to, you know, be really astute and adapt to it. Um, do you agree with that? I mean, I'm curious to your comments and thoughts on that. Well, I, I do. I, I, I agree with some of the things you were saying. In fact, um, one in a way to bring this home, I guess, and in conclusion, I'm glad that you went the direction you did because earlier you talked about some impending layoffs coming, and I agree with you. I, I agree that before November, we are going to have some major layoffs, probably in the oil and gas industry. So when I take a look at your comment, because I, like I said, I agree with you, Venmo just made uh, laid off a bunch of people. The WWE just laid off a bunch of people. Citibank laid off a bunch of people. When I take a look at the people that I look at for key indicators, now I'm not, those companies are not necessarily the specific ones I look for, but they're in the industries and they receive the government funds and shareholder funds that I look for because once those layoffs happen, the trickle down is not far behind. Now, the oil and gas industry actually produces a raw commodity. We actually produce something that people need. Well, the government has done their best to try to, to get us away from that, to be more of a government-managed marketplace. As we kind of go through some of that, I think we're going to see more layoffs happening. Now, whether you know the, the merger of Oasis and um, Whiting uh, to become Cord Energy, you know, you got two accountings, you got two HRs, you got two marketing. That generally leads to some layoffs. Okay, so I look at that. And we've been seeing that. We've been seeing that for the past, you know, two years. That's, where that's anywhere. We, we've yeah. Been, yeah. Yeah, that's, that, that's what's going to We've certainly been seeing that in Denver. Yeah. Totally. And, and so when I take a look at these types of things, these are examples of the tea leaves that are being read to what is going to end up really come into what you talked about, which is massive unemployment. So eventually the massive unemployment is going to get so big that something's going to happen. Either the government's going to force people to work and, and through some climate emergency, or people are going to actually decide to go back to work and decide, hey, maybe I'm going to go do this job instead of just being told what to do my entire life. You know, I mean, it's, I, but I, I, I agree with you. I, unfortunately, I wish I had some more positive things, but I've seen it and I've talked to the people and I talk, I mean, this, the, my, my words are not coming from just me. They're coming from a lot of people. They're coming from truckers, from Absolutely. business owners, from texts, from emails. This is the collective energy. Absolutely. Go ahead. Sorry. Yeah. Well, so I, I just think I, I wish the industry and I, 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 you know, I implore the industry to, you know, hire people. And I, I, this is a shout out to me in my business, but I, anybody that does what I do that really understands the business, you know, energy, economics and, you know, oil and gas, intimately understanding the U.S. oil and gas industry and understanding how all these macro factors impact your business. Because a lot of times I think they think it's so out there. And this is to your point of this, you know, these this M&A and these mergers and acquisitions, you know, they took place in a period where we have these rising prices. I hear of lots of assets sales and stuff. I think that's definitely slowing the appetite. You know, I always, you always want your pulse on, you know, your finger on the needle, the pulse of what's happening sort of in New York and, and where are the, where is the, you know, funds going and, and how do people feel about the market as people get nervous about the economy, less deals get made. Right. So even, um, what we saw with all these mergers and acquisitions in the shale space as of late has been partly, you know, firstly, it was because they had to, to survive. And secondly, it was, it was then because oil prices are high. When oil prices come down, say they go to 80 bucks or 75 bucks, people are going to get anxious because they don't know where demand's going. They don't know for cratering. And personally, they don't know the macro well enough. You know, they don't, they're not a chief economist. They don't spend their day and night watching what I watch and, and doing it. So they may make the wrong decisions. And with that is problematic is that those deals will slow, right? So you just won't have those crazy deals, but you may have, and I don't think we, we shouldn't see 
in that case, we shouldn't see massive layoffs in the oil and gas space. And that's why I really encourage folks that are touching energy in any way, shape and form to really understand not just their business, but the business, you know, the the macro world, you know, in the U.S. and outside of it and how it's going to impact them. Because if you're ahead of the curve, you're going to be able to navigate this stuff and you will be able to see opportunities where other people don't and vice versa. And yes, you have headwinds. I mean, as a small business, we face headwinds all the time and you navigate it and you push through it. And the oil and gas companies are going to have to do the same thing. And so if you're banking on $100 oil, you're probably going to be wrong. And you shouldn't be banking on $100 oil anyway. You know, you need to be budgeting and, and marketing and forecasting for $75 oil and, you know, capturing the upside. And I, just, I, just, I mean, we can close with that. But I, I just think that's a lesson for the industry is that, you know, th- this uh, the only reason you should be comfortable at these prices is because of geopolitics. And that's not a reason to be comfortable because it's causing food crises and energy crises around the globe. And that hurts uh, that hurts oil demand. Yeah, I agree. And I, I just think right now is a good time to make sure that your leadership is um, the type that you want to go through these these uncharted waters. And I can say this from the media that if you don't have a golden parachute there, it's 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 tough. It is tough, but it's doable. It's very doable. It's just sometimes, you know, you got to have rice and beans for dinner. That's all. That's that's, that's going to be the new yeah, normal well, that's for a our, lot of people. That's a, <laughs> That, that's our, our positive note is, is navigating and getting through it. Well, thank you so much, Jason. We've taken an hour of our listeners' time. Uh, really, really appreciate it. And uh, we will definitely be doing this again soon. Awesome. Thank Bye, you. Folks.